you're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season nine, episode nine. Oh my Lord, can you hear me now? Oh my Lord, man, I've been so down. I've been waiting for my time, I've been waiting for my shine, but the night is always dark, it's before the sunrise, so shine on. Joshua Luke Smith is a British rapper, poet, and producer with a dramatic, socially conscious style rooted in explorations of the Christian faith. He was born in London, raised in Pakistan, and holds a degree in philosophy, which informs his music with a unique perspective on the world, both from his education and his experience. In this episode, I talk with Joshua about his upbringing, his creative process, as well as philosophy and overcoming addiction. You can see the show notes of this episode for links to Joshua's new book, Something You Once Knew, and for additional patron-only interview segments in our creative collective. This is my interview with hip-hop artist Joshua Luke Smith. Joshua, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics podcast today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, man, I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. Oh, man, it's been incredible. I've been listening to your music for the past couple of weeks, riding around with my kids in the car, and now we get in and my son's like, hey, play Shine On, play Shine On. <laughs> so, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You're one of the first hip hop artists that I've had on Makers and Mystics. So oh, your nice. perspective, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to get your perspective on the creative process, your work, and some of the motivations behind what you do. Oh, cool, man. No, that's, that's what I'm on it. I'm on it to be here, man. Yeah, definitely, definitely excited to chat all things creativity. Well, I'd love to start with your background and just dive into this a little bit because you have a very unique upbringing in that. You were born in the UK, but then you grew up in Pakistan. Is that correct? Yeah. So I am what is known in some circles as an MK, man. I'm a missionary kid. My parents left the comfort of England and put all of our belongings into a big shipping container. And we moved out to Pakistan when I was about two. So my younger sister was born there. And I was, those formative years were in the foothills of the Himalayas. And wow. coming back to England in the late 90s is actually what was the strange thing. You know, that, that was where I had to acclimatize. Pakistan was what I knew as a child. And, and it was, in, as I've grown older, I'm now in my 30s. As I've grown older, I, I'm, I'm only now truly realizing how impactful it was and how much it shaped me along the way. How did that experience shape the music that you write? Yeah, I mean, I don't actually know if I'd be doing what I am doing if it if it wasn't for those years because we lived in a rural town uh, up in the north, and so it was it was hours to drive anywhere. But whenever we got in the car to go on these long drives, and we would drive down this road called the Karakoram Highway, so. If you're listening, just just Google, get up on your phone and Google the KKH. It was a road built by the Pakistanis and the, and the Chinese, I believe. And it is, um, it's both awe-inspiring and absolutely petrifying. Um, wow. You know, it, it, it's this mountain road with this huge epic drop that goes down to a river. And we'd drive along this road and my dad would just play his cassettes, his CDs and cassettes for hours. I mean, I'm talking, <laughs> we would go top to bottom on, a, on, a, on an album, repeat it, then move on to the next one. And 
And thankfully he had great, he has great taste. So that was, it was Tracy Chapman and Cass Stevens, Tom Petty mm-hmm. and the Heartbreakers. It was Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan. And yeah. I, grew, I, I was baptized into music and storytelling and, you know, pre- predominantly like folk artistry. And then some of the kind of Christian adjacent songwriters as well, you know, <laughs> you know, you're the, the old school worship guys like Keith Reed and, yeah, and yeah. you know, and that stuff just, it just got into me. Like everyone grows up around music in some respect, but I really like, you know, it was a huge part of my childhood. And so, so I think at a young age, I just thought this is what I want to do. Like I want to write music. I want to tell stories. And I found different expressions for that along the way, but Pakistan definitely put it in me. Well, I'm really interested to know how you made your way from that background and that upbringing into hip hop. Yeah, my, my big sister Hannah, she bought the um, the Fuji's record, and she oh, yeah. brought it. She brought it home, and she put it on my bed. And I remember putting it in, and just, that was my introduction to hip hop. Was you know Lauren Hill and Wyclef, just storytellers again. And, and in my mind, it wasn't actually like discovering a new genre. It was like it was an it was um, an evolution to the storytelling music that I'd always loved. I think mm-hmm. the difference with hip hop for me was. I felt I felt out of place in the thought that I could do it as well. You know, like it was sure. so specific of of a of a place and a time and a people that I oh man, I was just a fan, you know, and I just listened and listened and then I then I found Eminem and Eminem kind of changed things for me because because he was white, if I'm honest, you know, I, I, yeah. I found this white guy doing it, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh, like maybe, maybe I can do it." And actually, I'd already been writing poems, like I'd been writing loads of poems, but Eminem, Eminem kind of gave sort of a sense of permission it, it, to me. But what came also with listening to Eminem was excellence and artistry, and you know, he's in most people's top five MCs of all time. You know, like yeah. he is—he's one of the best to do it, and yet he has a reverence for the culture and a reverence for the history of hip hop. And so I just dove into it. Like, where does this genre come from? Like who are the pioneers who paid the price for it to become like a mainstream genre. Mm -hmm. And by like 15, you know, by 15, I'm probably four years in and I'm just writing in a basement, making beats. And I'm saying to people, this is what I'm going to do. Like I am going to be, and I actually always said, I'm going to be a poet. You know, that, that was something that resonated with me. I'm going to be a poet and you get, people would call me a rapper or an MC, but I always felt more comfortable with the word. Like I'm, I'm a poet, you know? And, um, yeah. So, so I've always had a love for hip hop and folk music stories. Storytellers is kind of, is where I'm most comfortable um, but yeah, like, you know, if we did Desert Island Discs, most of mine are going to be, be in hip hop. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. For me, it was the Beastie Boys. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. My journey takes me back to License to Ill and some Come of on. that early stuff from the Beastie yeah, Boys. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Yeah. Classics, classics. Yeah, yeah. Well, they say of me, I made it. I ain't here to get famous. I ain't here for the playlist. I just pray they play this in years to come. Like my grandson in the basement, play my tape for his mate, say my grandfather made this. Speaking like a prophet. Well, man, I love what you're saying that this path that you're on with hip hop, with poetry and music making, this is something that came alive in you early on. And it sounds like you've pretty faithfully followed that for the long haul. And I think mm. that's a really inspiring story for up and coming artists and people that might be listening to this podcast because these days it seems like there is so much available to us Mm -hmm. 
I imagine growing up in Pakistan and the different experiences you had, you had a, a, a rich, but perhaps a limited access to things. Whereas today, there's so much that we can pull from. It can, right. it can be overwhelming for young people. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But I love hearing how that was a consistent pursuit for you. Yeah, I would describe it as an obsession. You know, I think, mm -hmm. I think when I talk about it, I just don't ever have. I've never considered like another approach. Do you know what I mean? Like I've never yeah. considered. I've never considered doing anything else with my life. Um, and it's funny because I'll watch people do. You know, so I I, I love mixed martial arts, and I I watch people do that, and I think, oh, it's so admirable the fact that. You know, you've from an early age, you've trained and disciplined yourself to move your body in such a way and have the, the, you know, the sort of what's the word, the conditioning to do this, you know, painful sport. And what amazing thing to be in your 30s and just be incredible at it. And then I think to myself, that's, that's music for me. That's like, I've, I've done this. Like, you know, the, I would, I would be rolling around on judo mats at, at eight years old. Like <laughs> I was, I was rolling around with words and ideas at eight and I've just never stopped doing it. And it's never been a question of like, will I get paid to do it, to validate doing it? I'm going to do it. And thankfully along the way, there's been moments when it's like someone's cut me a check for doing, it. I'm like, okay, Let's, let's keep going, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I know that you also have a bit of philosophy in your background, and I think that that uh, influences some of your lyrics. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, but mm. I, I do know you studied philosophy. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know how that plays into your art, your lyrics, and your storytelling. Yeah, I mean, philosophy came about just out of intrigue, you know. I grew up, mm -hmm. in, as I said, I grew up in this missionary environment and so I grew up with a sense of faith and a sense of belief in in this certain kind of viewpoint and but but I've always just been curious of well I wonder how how someone else makes sense of the world and has a sense of salvation whether that's a kind of a theistic idea of salvation or an existential kind of um idea of salvation just you know it's going to be okay. Like what, you know, yeah. it's going to be okay. And, and part of me was always intrigued of like, yeah, how is it okay for someone who just absolutely fundamentally believes that this is all a massive accident and ultimately we just turn back into worm food and how, and I, <laughs> but, but like with a sense of real, real respect for it of like, absolutely, I, I, I brush against brush up against people all the time who have that view and have a deep sense of security in the world. And, and so philosophy was like this four years of just, you know, sitting at the feet of all these different scholars and thinkers and uh, mystics, you know, and, and people that yeah. just have, have perceived things along the way. And it was fascinating. I absolutely loved it. And on the last day of studying, my wife said to me, okay, it's been four years. What have you learned? And, you know, such a massive question. And I, <laughs> and I said, I think, I, I think I've learned ultimately that everyone bows to something like, Along the way, everyone bows to something, whether wow. it's, you know, whether it's Bertrand Russell and it's just the, the intellect or it's, yeah. um, you know, Albert Camus. And, and again, like the, the sheer weight of absurdity in the world or it's, or it's the Christian thinkers and it's God and, or whether it's the, the Hindus, it's just everyone within the heart of every human, there's a, there's reverence and it needs yes. to find its way out in some way or another. And it's, it's my music, I think tries to distill some of those thoughts as best as I can. Um, 
I don't know if I always do it that well. Like I, I, I'm often working with three minutes rather than, you know, 300,000 words like some of these writers. But, <laughs> right. um, but, but I, tried to, I tried to dig in at some of those thoughts along the way. It's funny, you're talking about this human need for reverence, this human desire, like regardless of our belief systems or where we land existentially, mm -hmm. we all have a desire for wonder. We all have a desire mm -hmm. to reach for something larger than ourselves. And mm -hmm. it was really interesting. I was just looking through a news channel the other day and they were saying, scientists are beginning to make plans to reach out for other life forms, you mm -hmm. know, on other planets. I'm like, is it that interesting that even in a society that's predominantly secular in its views mm. of life, we still have a yearning to reach out to something beyond yes. our, our, our humanity, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting as well that it's, you can go through a lot of your life with a sort of a numbed, I know this from experience, a numbed indifference to it all. And then there's just the moment that comes, which catches you off guard and awakens you again to that sense of wonder and reverence. And often I do think that suffering, you know, I, mm -hmm. alongside music, I've worked as a, as a pastor throughout my twenties. So for about 10 years and I would, um, yeah, I would think to myself sometimes like, is this, is this kind of vocation really needed? Like who is re who really needs me to do this job? And mm. you know, you know, there's a lot of good books out there, and there's a lot of good <laughs> podcasts, and there's a lot of just good people that are just living their life and giving great advice. And anyway, I did the first funeral I did was for a child, and the second mm. funeral I did was for uh, my best friend, and then the fourth funeral I did was just for a really loved and respected person in our community. And it was during those funerals that. I realized this is when we this is when we need the pastors and the poets um, amongst us because we need people that are camped out in mystery and in spiritual thought because when death comes, it's a level playing field and we're winded and we're we're confronted again with our sense of I think wonder like we in the real sense of it we are like wondering like what is this all about. <laughs> And, yeah. and it just reminded me in those times of this is, this is why the pastoral vocation is important is to, is to create space for these moments. And I, Eugene Peterson said, the pastor and the poet have the same mandate to speak into mm -hmm. the chaos. And that's oh. kind of, you know, like that's, so I, yeah, that's what I want to do with my poems and my writing. I want to meet people in, in the chaos, you know? Yeah, well, that's beautiful. That was actually one of the questions I had for you is I, I saw that you had said you felt like you had a mandate to speak into the chaos. I'd love to hear you elaborate even more on that. Mm, yeah, no, I just, oh man, that's, that's where art has like spoken to me is in, is this in chaos. And it, it's not, it's often not someone setting out to say like, I'm going to write about this particular, you know, situation and try and untangle it and say something profound about it. It's often something disconnected from that moment, but having created space to engage with just the deeper human yearnings, like mm -hmm. beauty, you know, like it's yes. funny, isn't it? Like you hear someone talking about be something beautiful, whether it's a, a human or a landscape, and then you're in this place of depression and melancholy, <laughs> and then they're like, their reverence and their they're kind of hanging out around beauty then meets you and you're so grateful for their interpretation and their time spent over there. And that's, that's what I think good art does. It's like, 
spend time dwelling on something that has the potency to actually infiltrate someone else's experience and just this magical moment happens, you know? Yes, I love <laughs> it. That's so beautiful, so beautiful. Well, before we get off the subject of philosophy, I'd love to know who are some of your most influential thinkers or poets? Mm. Right right now, um, I'm, uh, I'm spending a lot of time with T.S. Eliot as a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, so his poem, Little Giddings, is just... Oh, uh, yes. There's a stanza in it, which... I just can't get enough of, and I've written a few pieces inspired by it. I don't know what, if I'll do anything with them, but his phrase goes, and we won't cease our exploration, but we will arrive back to where we started and know it for the first time. We won't cease our exploration, but we will arrive back where we started and know it for the first time. And I, I hear that and I just like, I just, that's what I want, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Whatever we want to call it from, you know, evolution to deconstruction, there is this rhythm in our life where we, we just, Abraham, you know, we've got to leave the gods of our fathers and we've got to go out on our own. And there's such a grief in that and such a bewilderment and perplexity in it and, and a mm-hmm. deep desire for us to explore. But I think deep down, to get real specific, deep down, I want to sing the old songs I used to sing and believe them again. You know what I mean? And sing them in a new way and, you know, mm. and, and, and know them for the first time. And, you know, that's why, that's why I think we have wedding anniversaries is so that mm-hmm. we can stop for a day and look at our beloved and know them for the first time. And like, Gosh. whether, do you know what I mean? Whether it's like one year yes. or 20 years, look into their eyes and just be like, I, we can't we can't change the last 10 years and maybe the stuff we've experienced maybe there's been loss maybe there's been an affair like we can't change what's happened but we can almost ex- experience each other with this naivety still like mm-hmm. we've we've just begun falling in love and his poem um little giving just yeah does that so so profoundly yeah thank you for sharing that yeah this is an ode to the dreamer, the make-believer Who left the floorboards beneath her Reached to the ether, high-fived the gatekeeper Stretched out her limbs like a preacher Singing hymns to the grim reaper just to make him feel weaker This season on Makers and Mystics, we have been focused primarily on the theme of mental, emotional, and spiritual health as it relates to the creative artist. Mm. And I know that some of the songs that you write deal with overcoming addictions and deal with overcoming difficult situations in life. I'd love to dive into that for a moment and just talk about how your faith or how your art has helped you on that journey of mental, emotional, or spiritual health? Mm. Oh man, be- beautiful question. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing all the all the ground you cover on this series in, in that respect. I think probably the way I approach it is my art is is my confession of it, you know, like rather than rather than my art is the kind of the process in which I find the solace. I think it's more is the process of confessing that I need the solace, that I need the healing. It's where I'm confronted with myself. And I've always found that to be true. And so I, I released an album last year called The Void. And the the void is this kind of outpouring of existential bewilderment and it covers a ton of different subjects but there's a song on there called silence and that that for me is is a song that 
that that changed a lot for me writing that song because it was a it was a deeply honest confessional song that both announced this is where I'm this is where I am like this is kind of you know I've been drinking denial you know running through questions that live in my mind searching for answers that no man can find outside of himself but then the chorus it just says I love the silence And it's just so weird. Like I wrote that song because it was like, here I am in all this anxiety and all these thoughts, all this grasping for something like it's going to satisfy. And at the whole time, I know that it's silence and it's solitude that genuinely leads me into this, into the peace that passes understanding. Yes. And yet I'm constantly denying myself the just the permission to be there, you know? The, the second verse goes, oh, these words feel risky, burning my throat like the age whiskey I'm drinking. And I just, I've got vices, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. and they're not inherently bad, but I've got vices that, that I run to instead of the places where I know I'm actually going to find that peace. And so I'm trying to use my art to <laughs> like the priest that I confess to. And then also as like, I don't know, the guide that leads me to the places that I know I want to be in. Mm. Um, and so silence is a big one. Like, bro, if I, my, my rhythm on, the, on my best day is waking up in the morning an hour before my wife and daughter and just being on my own in, in silence and in solitude. And I am, I'm such a better man because of it. Yeah, such a better man because of it. And so I think... Um, I'm, I'm going on a tangent there, but yeah, that, that's that's, good. Th that's a practice. There's a there's a story about Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst, and he he sat with a guy who was just like frustrated and anxious, and he said to him, "Like I've come to the great Dr. Carl Jung, you know, help me." And he said, "All I want you to do is, when you finish work, just go home and spend time on your own, and return to me in two weeks, and tell me how it's been." And so he comes back in two weeks and he's even more anxious and even more frustrated. And he says, I did exactly what you said. I finished work. I finished a 12 hour day and then I'd come home and I'd be on my own. You know, I'd, I'd read some Hemingway and I'd put on some Chopin, you know, and I'd just be on my own. And here I am anxious. And Carl Jung said to him, but you haven't been on your own. You know, you've been with Hemingway and Chopin. And, and then the man says, but I can't bear to be on my own. And then mm. Carl Jung says, and yet that's the man you afflict upon everybody else, you know? <laughs> wow, <laughs> so, so, so even like not having a journal or a book or a podcast or a Bible or a playlist and just literally staring at the wall and just being on my own and has become such a healthy or health-inducing practice. Not that I do it every day, but oh man, it's been, been very helpful. That's so good, man. I'm so glad you shared that. You know, it's it's interesting. You're talking about vices. And I notice even in my own life how quickly we reach for something when we wake mm. up. Yes. What do you you know, what do you reach for when you first yes. wake up? Yes. I've had to discipline myself in that. It doesn't always come natural, but I've I've made it a practice now that I do seek first. You know, before I get into anything else, even if it's like five minutes, you know, and in in our family, my wife usually takes our kids to school. And so I know I've got about 15 minutes in the house before the right. day gets crazy and it's yes. just a moment alone. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to work on the podcast. I'm not going to write. I'm not going to read. I'm not going to play music. 
I'm going to sit in the silence. And that's something Ooh. that I'm trying to cultivate in my own life right now. Beautiful. So it's really, really good hearing that. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. That's that's stunning, man. I love that you even said that 15 minutes because I think sometimes yeah. you can think, unless I have the monastic two hours, you know. <laughs> that's but, right. Yeah, 15 minutes. Do you, do, you know, um, do you know, is Henry Nowen up on that bookshelf somewhere? Oh, brother, Henry Nowen has got his own shelf back here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm preaching to the choir, but I love his reflection on solitude where he talks about the other side of our uniqueness is our aloneness. And so mm-hmm. if, if you're to... If you're to confess that I'm unique, you're also to confess I am alone. Like there's no one like you on the planet. No one looks like you, thinks like you, has had your story. And so what are you to do with your aloneness? Will it lead you into loneliness or will it lead you into solitude where you, you know, where you can be so, so kind of immersed in solitude that you've never been more connected to all things rather than immersed in in movement and people that you've never been more disconnected to all mm-hmm. things. And like, you know, Henry now, like what a, what a message for 2022, you know? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting you bring him up because I just recently picked up this book off of my bookshelf from Henry now oh, called yes. The Way of the Heart. Yes. And man, this book was written, I guess, in the 80s, but I just felt prompted to pull this off of the shelf the other day. And I started reading this and I was like, oh my gosh, this feels like he wrote this for our day and for wow. this year. Wow. And there's there's so much in this book that if you if you take out knowing that he wrote it in the 80s, it feels like he wrote it for our generation for this mm-hmm. day. And it just has three simple sections. One is solitude, one mm. is silence, and one is prayer, Oof. you know? And so Oof. highly recommended. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll have to put a link to this book for yeah. the listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. Silence, solitude, and prayer. Beautiful. It's so countercultural, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, is absolutely. It? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Oh, man, it's such a tension. It's such a... It's, it's, it's so difficult to like, especially, you know, as an artist where we have... You know, I have a career because I've been able to engage with people who, who engage with my art and, and not have had to sign a deal that, you know, sells my soul down the river. And yet the engagement to those people is also the thing that can pull me away from the, like <laughs> the health and the sort of this. So it is, it's like, how do we, how do we live as modern monastic musicians that are involved in the community? And sometimes being involved in the community is actually in a technological sense how do we stay involved in the community but then also withdraw from the community yeah i think i think we're really we i don't think we have it yet i don't and i think it might not it might it might be our children that really really get it because we're gonna have to go through so much stumbling around to get there but i think i think we're we're, we're on a path those who want to are on a path to really kind of work in this one out I went out for breakfast with my dad this morning and uh, my, my dad works, he runs a charity where he, he just spends day in day out helping people detox addiction. 
And we were just having this conversation around addiction. We particularly talk around gambling. And then we but we got we got onto the phone and we talked started talking about email addiction. And I said to him, I was like, when do you think, like, when is it an addiction, Dad? Like, when is the relationship with this device an addiction? And he said, well, you know, when with with, with a gambling addict, for example, you know, when the child is locked in the car screaming and you know the parent is inside placing another bet, you know we got a problem and you could mm-hmm. say the same thing with the phone you know you're downstairs scrolling and there's a child upstairs crying and these are kind of extreme sort of images of it but but where we were getting to was like imagine this is going a little bit deep but th- there's an inner child right there's a there's an eight-year-old josh you know and, and with primary fundamental needs and how do i parent him you know and, and as older josh am i just scrolling or doing whatever whilst there's this child that needs some nurture which that feed isn't going to fulfill and maybe at that point it's okay to acknowledge ah oh, this this might be a problem and we started just talking about Christ and and he, what he said around um th- this is this is kind of strong language we can break the language down a little bit but you know if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out if your hand causes you to sin cut it off which which Jesus obviously was not <laughs> meaning literally in any sense let's just let's just make sure that's clear but what he was saying very clearly was it's just not worth it like yeah. it's just you know it's better to see with one eye like it's just not worth it and i think um yeah i just wonder if there's something in that that i'm that i need to take hold of a bit more and others might resonate with as well of like you have permission to delete all those apps and you have permission to leave your phone at home because humanity has evolved and progressed very well without the massive intake of technology that we currently have for a long time you know of course technology is phenomenal it's wonderful but hey we're gonna be okay if you stay off your phone for a couple of days this week you know if you gouge yeah. it out like <laughs> you're gonna be okay you know yeah there'll, there'll be a way to reach you it's all right you know like yeah. that was just something that's fresh from this morning one of my mentors this year said to me, he said, Stephen, an addiction is anything a person is willing to give up everything in order to do. Oh, wow. He's <sighs> like an addiction is something a person is willing to give up everything to do this one thing. Right, yeah. But I think that some of the addictions and some of the things that our generation faces are so subtle. Somebody said to me the other day, social media is the cigarette of our generation. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, like 20 years from now, you download the app and it just says may cause brain damage. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's exactly right. Someone, right. someone, someone said to me recently, uh, must secondhand scroll, you know, secondhand scroll. Oh, wow, like, yeah. Like if you smoke in a car with a kid that, you know, that they're inhaling it. Well, if you scroll like around someone, there, there's an impact. Like this is real, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Do you have the throne of a king and the soul of a queen? Well, you don't own anything and your phone never rings. Do you roam for your peace in the belly of the beast and only get to sleep when you scroll through the feed? Just well, man, before we finish up, I want to make sure I give some time to talk about your new book that you have coming out. And uh, it's called Something You Once Knew. I'd love to know about your book. Tell me what, what we can expect from the pages. Oh, and I appreciate it. Well, the title is... The title is there just to just to kind of provoke the idea that there's something that we may have all forgotten and something that really makes life worth living, something that makes life as rich as it truly is. And um, 
I've written it hopefully as somewhat of an antidote to cynicism and indifference and despair. And more than anything, I've written it to myself in that respect. I've gone through the last 10, 12 years of my life and pulled out stories and reflections that come up against the idea that this life is you know, just a chaotic void of indifference. Mm. And uh, the title is actually taken for, for the film buffs listen and taken from the first scene of Inception when, um, when Leonardo DiCaprio, who is Co the character Cobbs, is within a dream, within a dream, within a dream. And he's meeting with his friend Sato, who in reality is a young man, but in the dream world has aged and is now as an old man. So you have this young man, Cobbs and his old man Sato. And Cobb said to Sato, I've come back to remind you of something, something you once knew. And Sato replies, you've reminded me to honor our agreement. And he says, yes, so that we can be young men together again. Mm, and uh, wow. you know, we talk about like aging before our time and that's what, that's what cynicism and despair does. And so the book serves as, serves as a reminder of something you once knew. Wow. Well, I want to read a quote from the book. It says, The Spirit calls us beyond the boats of our qualifications, the boundaries of our courage, and the realm of our understanding. We are invited to live a life we are fiercely underprepared for, a life that will tether us to grace, free us from our addiction to self-preservation, and cause us to live in a holy state of perplexity, enamored with our own existence. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, bro, I, bro, I wish you did the audiobook, man. I wish we'd got you in to record the audiobook. That sounded good. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Dude, if I don't know about the rest of the book, but that quote alone is is worth its weight in gold. <laughs> oh, brother, thank you. Yeah, no, I I look back on 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 my life and and I look back on the life my parents have lived and I see lives that um are rich with stories of risk and stories of you know, what I would say is faith. Like, and, mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in this kind of like superhero sort of faith idea, but like the fisherman uh, on the shore of Galilee who just looked into the eyes of Christ and saw a life that, that propelled them beyond the nets that they were expected to mend. And uh, I, genuinely, I genuinely believe it's available for all of us. Like I just do. I genuinely believe that you can wake up each morning and be slightly dumbfounded by the idea you get to do it all over again. And at the same time, you're, you're meeting it for the first time. Like it's not Groundhog Day. It's like, Oh my days, I get to live this again. And it's just brimming with the possibility of something new. I, I think we get to do that. Incredible. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers of Mystics podcast. This has been an incredible conversation, my friend, and I love the work you're doing. And thank you for being a voice to this generation. Oh, mate, what a joy. I've loved it, bro. I've loved it. Thank you for having me. And as always, thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach. I'd like to say thank you to our patrons who support the production of these episodes. And if you're not currently supporting the podcast, I'd like to invite you to join our creative collective. For as little as $1 to $10 a month, you can help us to create quality content that encourages artists and creatives across the world. Just visit makersandmystics.com or see the show notes of this episode. We'll see you again next week. And as always, keep creating. The world needs your art. <laughs>